All right, and welcome back to the Future Ear Radio Podcast. I am joined here today by Nancy Williams. This is going to be a great episode. So Nancy, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, Dave, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here. I've been a longtime uh, listener, and I should add reader of Future Air Block. Uh, I think I was one of your uh, early readers of the transcript in my hearing loss. And uh, I'm president of Auditory Insight, and uh, we are a boutique management consulting firm that is focused on developing successful commercialization strategies for hearing healthcare with a heavy emphasis on market development. And I know we're going to get into that more uh, during the session, we um, we work across the entire vertical of hearing healthcare. So our clients include hearing aid manufacturers, co- cochlear implant manufacturers, as well as gene therapy and drug therapy companies. Uh, but having said that, though, we focus only on hearing healthcare. So we have developed a real expertise in the area over the five years or so that we've been in business. Fantastic. Yeah, it's uh, really great to have you on. I was originally introduced to you um, by Andy Bellavia. So I know that we share that common connection and um, he just speaks really highly of you. And he was the first one to really turn me on to auditory insight. Um, And, uh, you know, as you described there, um, a lot of research around market development, which ties really nicely into the, the theme that we've been discussing on this podcast, which is sort of the evolving landscape of the hearing healthcare market. It's very much in flux right now. Um, you know, things that we can't control, like the state of the, you know, uh, FDA guidelines around the over-the-counter, you know, Hearing Aid Act, uh, which has been just sort of a prolonged process that continues to be dragged out. Um, and so in the in the meantime, the market moves on. And so I think there's a, a lot of really interesting things to kind of unpack about what's going on and how we should maybe be thinking about some of these things as it relates to both, you know, how we can be thinking about it from the history of this industry itself, as well as some anecdotal uh, examples of other industries um, and and, and areas that have experienced somewhat similar instances. So um, I also appreciate you mentioning the the transcript. And I just want to give you huge shout out here as you were one of the first people to really um, bring to my attention the importance of having all of my episodes transcribed um, so that for folks that you know, have, have a hearing loss, um, it might just be a little bit easier to listen and read along with the transcript. So kudos to you for bringing that to my attention and, and kind of creating the change that you wanted to see in the world. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Oh, it was my pleasure, Dave, and kudos to you for responding so quickly. Uh, that was helpful. Awesome. Well, great. So um, let's start with you. Um, so, I, I mean, you had mentioned that you do have a hearing loss. Um, do you mind sharing maybe um, a little bit of your backstory and, and then ultimately leading into auditory insight and how maybe um, living with hearing loss has shaped your view and ultimately it all culminated into launching auditory insight? Sure, I'd be happy to. So today I have a moderate to severe hearing loss, but when I was first diagnosed at age six, uh, my hearing loss was only uh, mild high frequency. Uh, But we'll hear in a minute that that's actually, um, that mild is a bit of a misnomer. It's a misleading label. Uh, So in kindergarten, um, I was singing too loudly on the big bad rug. Mrs. Coyle, who was my beloved kindergarten teacher, used to play the (laughs) piano. And she was um, 
That was one of the highlights of the day for me. And well, I, I hope we'll also talk more about my love for the piano and how that's impacted uh, my choice of careers with auditory insight. She recognized that, uh, that there was something going on with my hearing. And I remember her turning around to the class and saying, oh, somebody is singing too loudly. And I looked around, I was like, oh, I wonder who that is. And this little boy next to me kind of nudged me and I was sort of annoyed. I'm like, why is he nudging me? And I nudged him back. Uh, but it became pretty clear that I did have a hearing loss uh, that summer when I was taken to the University of Arizona's ideology department. I grew up in Tucson and my dad was a professor at the U of A uh, for a hearing test. And I still remember kind of being led into that sound, sound booth and how scary it was as a little kid. And after the test, the audiologist recommended a hearing aid and my parents refused uh, and they were doing the best they could because they felt that a hearing aid would be socially limiting. Uh, so fast forward um, to about seven, six or seven years later and I'm in seventh grade and I'm struggling to hear my pre-algebra teacher when he turns his back to the classroom, he's writing equations and he's talking at the same time and I'm missing some of what he's saying. Um, and, you know, I was telling my parents about this and after that point, we had used accommodations like front row seats for me. And oftentimes during recess, I would go up to the teacher and say, you know, when you were talking about so-and-so, what did you say after that? I was very, um, uh, you know, motivated to try to get as much information as I could, which I think helped me, but that only lasts so far. Um, but it wasn't until I actually had a social, socially limiting experience that my parents finally got a hearing aid. So I ate lunch with this group of women, um, a group of girls in middle school, and they love to tell secrets. That's a classic middle school girl, middle school girl thing to do. Um, and so the secret train would get to me, and you know, I I couldn't hear these secrets at all. Um, so they pretty much kicked me out of the group. And at that point, after I was ostracized, my parents broke down and got me a hearing aid. And so, you know, it, it turns out that not being able to hear is as socially limiting as a hearing aid. They both have real elements of stigma that as people with hearing loss, we simply need to, to address and um, handle as best we can. Um, and once I got the hearing aid, you know, it, it, was, it was much easier for me, although, I will say even that I was, you know, I was embarrassed because I was, I felt like an other or, you know, somebody in a different group. And I think that's uh, the primary way the stigma can manifest itself for, for tweens and adolescents. Yeah, that's, um, I, I, it's so ironic almost that, you know, they were almost trying to uh, shield you from the the stigmatization um, by preventing you from getting a hearing aid, which ultimately culminated in you having to get a hearing aid because you became ostracized within your peer group. So it's like it came full circle that way. It is very ironic. And <laughs> I, I will say the silver lining is my parents are now very aware of hearing aids. So as they age, they have gotten uh, hearing aids themselves much earlier than their peers. I, I think that's been a good thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, okay. So, you know, you have this pretty formative experience, you get fit with hearing aids at an early age. Um, 
how has your experience been living with hearing aids? Um, you know, speaking to maybe some of the ways that either the technology has improved over the course of time, what it's like now compared to that first hearing aid device that you had, as well as just kind of, I guess, growing into the, um, the confidence and um, just comfort of, of the fact that this is a part of your life? It's a really good question. And I think that every person with hearing loss has that journey to becoming comfortable with, with that part of themselves. Uh, so really the name of the game when I was growing up was, was to hide my hearing loss. And certainly after I had that experience with those girls in middle school, you know, even though I had a hearing aid, I, I, I felt that I wanted to hide my hearing loss as much as possible. And I, uh, I went to Harvard Business School and the curriculum there was case-based so that a large part of your grade and really of your learning, most importantly, depended on these discussions of the cases with your peers. So we all sat in the same seat uh, for the first year uh, for every single class and the professors came to us. And uh, it was a big struggle there because uh, I am a lip reader and so I would turn around, um, the classroom was kind of an amphitheater and, and try to hear people better. But you know, other than requesting a seat in a certain area that gave me the most visibility of my peers, I didn't really ask for any accommodations. That, you know, the, 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 I, I was really mainly just trying to manage as best I could. And then I, I remember um, I then went, you know, I went into the business world and I worked first in telecom and then in healthcare services. And at one point I was interviewing for a new job and I was sitting outside a senior executive's office and my hearing aid battery went dead, uh, which was very poor timing. But yeah. of course I've changed a hearing aid battery thousands of, of times in my life. So I whipped out the battery, immediately changed it, put the hearing aid back in my ear just as the executive was walking out of the office. And for a long time, I congratulated myself on that, uh, almost like it was some sort of sleight of hand. But I think when I look back now, in a way that's sort of sad because it's all part and parcel of, um, of not coming to terms with this part of my identity. So I mentioned, I mentioned the piano earlier, and that really was uh, the part of my life that helped me come to terms with my hearing loss. Uh, so I played uh, until I was 16 and then I took it up again uh, when I was uh, in my early 40s. And over the course of the years, I've become an amateur concert pianist. And in, uh, and I, you know, I think it was thought when I was younger that I would never be a concert pianist because of my hearing loss. It was just viewed as the wrong disability for a musician. And I think a lot of musicians with hearing loss struggle with that. Um, so I started a blog. Uh, it was really an online magazine in 2010 called Grand Piano Passion. And I began to realize that it was almost a bit hypocritical of me to be writing so much about music and sound without addressing my hearing loss. So that's really when I came out if you will, about my hearing loss, and I became public with it. Um, and that was a scary experience for me. I wasn't, I thought there would be some sort of repercussion. Um, there was, it was, it was a good one. Um, it, it wasn't sort of what I feared that I would somehow be, you know, ostracized all over again, or, or thought of as, as 
you know, less competent or, or less capable. Uh, so with, with that, I really became an advocate on, on nights and weekends and um, continued with my business career during the day. And then in, I think it was, uh, oh, I can't, I, I cannot forget, it was 2016 because that was the, the cusp of the OTC um, regulations, um, legislation really moving through Congress, is I went to a career coach and I was interested in exploring my next step. And she looked at uh, my background and she said, well, it's great you're doing all this work and advocacy on nights and weekends, but why aren't you in hearing healthcare professionally? And I have to tell you, Dave, that the question actually surprised me. <laughs> I didn't expect her to ask that. And I think it was stigma all over again. Like it was okay to keep my hearing gloss tucked away on nights and weekends. But if I were to devote myself professionally to hearing loss and to hearing healthcare, you know, would that be a safe choice? Uh, would I be able to make it as a person with hearing loss? Uh, and I've since understood that that's part of what I bring to, you know, my clients' projects. Uh, so around the same time, and I, I think this was very lucky, great timing is later that year, FDA came out and said, we intend to create a class of over-the-counter hearing aids. And then as you know, uh, Congress, you know, took up the, the ball and we now are, are very close to having those regulations finalized later this year. Uh, and that really gave me that when FDA came out with that initial announcement, kind of the courage and really the motivation to, to start Auditory Insight. Thank you for sharing all that. I, that's such a cool story. And I, I think probably one that resonates with some of the people listening to this right now. Um, I guess my first question would be, who is your favorite composer? Like which, uh, <laughs> which line of, of piano do you like to play the most? Well, I hate to be predictable, but I adore Beethoven. Uh, that's awesome. I just, I just really relate to what, what he must have gone through. Like me, his hearing loss started out in the high frequencies. And as, as you probably know, by the time he composed the Ninth Symphony, he was essentially profoundly deaf. So his hearing loss deteriorated much more quickly than mine. Uh, but I, and I have per, uh, performed some Beethoven. So perhaps one of the most memorable performances I ever gave was at the 2017 Hearing Loss Association of America's National Convention. And I played uh, the first movement to Beethoven's uh, Moonlight Sonata, which is very famous. And uh, my teacher and I chose that because um, the main motif, da -da 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 -da, I can play the piano, but I can't sing. But anyway, <laughs> I think people probably know what I'm talking about. But that repeats itself um, in many different octaves throughout the piano. So whether you have a low frequency hearing loss or medium or high, my hope was that at least at some point that that main motif or that main famous melody would be audible to, to the, the people in the audience, which were really my people. And it was a wonderful feeling uh, getting up and bowing after that. And I, I think there were maybe 500 people in the audience um, and just seeing all of those people who you know, I shared so much of my life journey with. 
Yeah, it's uh, that's just so cool. What an awesome accomplishment and just like how your life comes full circle like that. Um, it's funny too, uh, you know, whenever I think about Beethoven, I have this really vivid memory. My grandpa um, who passed away when I was just a kid, but one of the earliest memories I have of him was he would always do the Sunday crossword uh, and and he was obsessed with Beethoven and he would always, <laughs> he called him Bates baby. And he'd be like, <laughs> You know, he would just be listening to to all Beethoven, just knocking out the crossword puzzle. And so um, I, I just have a lot of fond memories myself about Beethoven. But um, I just think that's I mean, it's like really, really neat to that, you know, in a way you're kind of carrying on um, a legacy in that regard where, you know, somebody that this incredibly talented composer who lived 500 years ago, you know, or however long ago, who had debilitating hearing loss, but was still able to produce such a masterpiece of a body of work. It is. And, you know, there's a, there's a fascinating book that I finished recently called Hearing Beethoven by Robin Wallace. And his wife had a cochlear implant. He's a musician and a professor at Baylor. And he, um, he talks about how, yes, Beethoven was able to compose without the benefit of hearing his music. Um, and he had a lot of accommodations, including this big resonator that he put over his piano. And the, Wallace's theory, at least, is that that would bounce the sound back and help him absorb the vibration. And I think Wallace really hit the nail on the head when he said that um, despite all of this, despite all of his accommodations, that I, it's very hard for us to imagine the grief that Beethoven must have felt at not being actually able to hear his own music. Yeah, I can totally, I can totally imagine that. Um, so with auditory insight, um, I feel like it's probably, you know, after I've read some of your research notes, do you have, uh, did, did, does a lot of your experience in your time at Harvard, um, does it translate over? Cause you said that a lot of what you were doing at Harvard was all this case-based stuff. Um, and when I'm reading your notes, it, I'm kind of recalling, you know, it's like, that is how I perceive that is a lot of these are very much case-based, you know, you're, um, it, it seems as if you were drawing upon that and, and did you feel like you were, um, you know, a part of your Harvard portion of your career in your life is now an auditory insight is an extension of, of that portion of your career. Yeah, absolutely. And I would actually go back a little bit earlier in time, because before I went to business school, I worked in strategic management consulting, uh, first for the Boston Consulting Group, and then for Maricon Associates. And I went down to Australia with Maricon and I helped them open their Melbourne office. So I worked for four years in management consulting. And that was a great prelude to the program at, at Harvard Business School. Uh, so I think those that the kind of six year period taken together is really important. And, and Harvard really, along with my experience in consulting gave me the ability to, uh, to understand industry dynamics and the forces that are acting on all of the players, uh, you know, we specialize not only in the patient journey, but also in understanding what are the barriers and motivators for audiologists, both hearing aid and cochlear implant, uh, ENT, general ENTs and neurotologists. Uh, and all of these players together are stakeholders and constitute the market and are acting on it in different ways. 
Yeah, I I think that's really neat um, because it does seem like that that makes sense. I didn't know that you had the market research the um, that portion be, you know leading into to the Harvard or actually following Harvard, um, but it makes sense in retrospect. And so when you had this uh, this career coach that you went to, um, did did this immediately jump out at you that? okay, if I want to get involved in the hearing healthcare space, I want to do that line of work, but within this industry? Uh, within the, within, by opening a management consulting yeah. industry? Yes. Yeah. Of which, and we do do some market research, uh, but primarily we're, we're strategists and we're thinking mm-hmm. about developing go-to-market strategy to uh, help grow the market. Yes. It was interesting because around that time, I also talked to my friends and some of whom had, were at the business school with me and had known me for years. And, and that's such a great thing to do is to go back to people who knew you earlier in your life and ask them, well, what did I like? And what was I good at? And I remember uh, one of my friends who, who runs a, a, a business unit now for a conglomerate said to me, well, you, you really seem to resonate with management consulting. That's when you seemed happiest. And so, yes, you're right. It was I think a great opportunity for me to be able to combine my interest in hearing healthcare in a consulting capacity. Okay, so let's start to get into some of the research uh, and and um, sure. you know market development that you've been looking at. Um, so you know when I was reading through some of your past notes, the first one I want to start with is the Q2 2021 note. Um, this is the one that's really around adoption of hearing aids. And you wrote a lot about price and stigma within this. So let's start just by you sort of setting the stage a little bit. And um, I guess giving a high level overview of of what you were setting out to look at and examine with this particular note. We started with the question of what are the barriers to people more actively wearing hearing aids? And if you, if you look at the market uh, research that's publicly available, for example, market track, and you group together the reasons why people who are not currently treated are not pursuing hearing care, you come up with three main reasons. Uh, and those will probably not be a surprise to you or your listeners. Uh, price is number one, followed closely by denial, and then stigma is number three. And we really felt uh, that the advent of OTC regulations will be a very interesting experiment on the issue of price. And so there's a kind of a major market event that's occurring in in the near future with regard to price. But what about denial and stigma? Well, denial to some extent is present in every single healthcare category. And sometimes people um, combine that with apathy as well. There will always be a segment of people who are not going to, to seek care. But then there's in hearing healthcare and in some other healthcare uh, categories as well, this issue of stigma. And so that's what we decided to zero in on. And uh, we, I will say, by the way, feel that some of denial is probably fueled by stigma. People are so unwilling to talk about um, feelings of shame related to their hearing loss or to the prospect of wearing hearing aids that it could present to a market researcher as denial, but really is a fear of stigma. Uh, so it's, it's no surprise that the industry has been struggling with stigma for decades. It's an entrenched phenomenon. 
Um, so the first thing we did for this research note was we went to one of my favorite researchers, Margaret Walhagen, who has done some work on stigma in adults. And she identified three, if you think about it, pretty shocking stereotypes that people with hearing loss uh, have about um, uh, regarding stigma. There's three perception categories. And first of all, it's that they're not whole, missing something. Secondly, that they're disabled. And thirdly, that they're in some way cognitively impaired. So people worry that by wearing hearing aids, by making their hearing loss more visible, that they will signal one, if not all, of those stereotypes or perceptions. So that's pretty, pretty big nut to crack. And, um, you know, so we said, all right, so we're, we're not, for, some, for whatever reason, we're struggling as an industry. Let's look outside of the industry, what we would call an analog for inspiration. And we alighted uh, somewhat interestingly on the idea of the smoking cessation campaign. And I remember talking to some teammates and they're like, wait a minute, you know, smoking cessation was all about getting people to stop smoking. And you're trying to get people to, to do something, to wear a hearing aid, to start something. How does that work? But, you know, what we realized is that kind of the intensity with which society once glamorized smoking is similar to the intensity with which some members of society stigmatize hearing loss and hearing aids. And I do wanna to say too, that a lot of stigma is uh, what we call internal. So it's internally generated uh, based on one or two experiences that people may have had with real external stigma in their environment. And in my case, for example, you know, I was, I was banished from this lunchtime group of girls because I couldn't hear secrets and that was very formative. And I internalized that and it kept me from doing things in a certain way from really living my dreams for a long time. So when we talk about the presence of stigma, it's, it's also within. Um, so with that kind of analogy in mind that the smoking cessation campaigns could be a useful model, we took a look at how successful they were and they've been extraordinarily successful, as probably many people know. And I like to cite the fact that in 1954, and this was right before the US Surgeon General uh, first warned Americans that, that smoking could cause lung cancer, almost half of American adults had smoked a cigarette at least once in the past week. Uh, whereas today, um, that number is, is significantly lower and you know it's around 15% or so. And so these, campaigns have been part of a larger social movement as well as governmental action to help people understand um, the, the health costs of smoking. So when we analyzed these smoking campaigns, uh, of course they were, they were using some of the typical marketing strategies that you would expect like targeting and testing and, and uh, developing a call to action. But they also had, we thought, were three innovative strategies, um, using a shock factor, empowering people to, uh, to quit smoking, and finally, employing counter-narrative. The other uh, point that you made, Dave, that I wanted to pick up on was that 
uh, it would be great if we could figure out a way to make it more societally acceptable or even cool to protect your hearing and treat your hearing. I think the, the, the kind of the biggest hope that we have uh, for that happening right now uh, rests with Apple. And I know you mentioned them earlier as well. I think they're really a potentially huge, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of potential there for Apple to have an impact on the market. What interests me about Apple is the hearing study is making data available uh, to people on how much they're actually exposed to dangerous levels of noise. And I also really like that the AirPods Pro have a protection plus customized amplification function wrapped in one device, which by the way, is perhaps one of the most socially acceptable devices to wear in your ear today. So I think both of those factors um, could potentially help normalize treating hearing loss in society. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, with everything regarding Apple, um, I think they're such an important company to recognize as being the one that really did usher in the normalization of wearing in-ear Bluetooth devices. It could have happened regardless whether or not AirPods ever were a thing, but I'm not sure if it would have happened as soon as it has, because again, this is something again that I've, I talk about a lot, I write about is I think we kind of underappreciate that point of you go into any public place now that the pandemic subsided a little bit, it seems, um, and you look around at the airport or wherever, everyone's wearing in the ear devices, it seems, or over the ear Bluetooth headphones. And, you know, like it or not, it might come across for some as a little dystopian that we're all kind of walking around plugged in all the time. But I think that for this specific aspect of our society, of the pervasiveness of hearing loss, and as you identified, the fact that this is already sort of a two-in-one device that provides you with that active noise cancellation is very much a, a that's a hearing conservation tool. And the fact that yes. you can then turn it back on into transparency mode and have hearing augmentation is quite an achievement. And this is why I, I think that like Apple isn't by any means like the end all be all, but I think that they are very much setting the tone of what people are becoming accustomed to what these devices can do and what they can have. And I'll go back to a comment that Andy made one time, Andy Bellavia, um, about, you know, how awesome would it be with as eff um, efficacious as Apple's ads tend to be if they have an ad at some point where it's, you know, sort of a la the iPod, you know, when you had that really um, you know, memorable ad and in that hallmark ad of everybody was dancing around with the white, um, you know, the white headphones. I could see it being some somewhat of a similar thing where it's all around conversation boost and it's you know highlighting this feature as you know we're providing you with superpower. You know, it's that kind of yes. thing where a lot of it is about the way that we message this stuff, a way that they that the public is perceiving these things rather than, you know, we're going to treat some sort of deficiency. It's like the way that they speak about it, even the name transparency mode is different than hearing amplification. You know, it's all right. messaging in this realm of like, do more with what you have. And I know these things seem sort of small and trivial on the surface, but like, 
this is how you usher in new norms within society in the same way that the truth campaign and all these different smoking cessation campaigns, they actively combated this, the, the, the then prevailing stereotype that smoking was cool. So yes, we have to have big, these big bodies that have the ability to really influence, I think, behavior um, that can in ways normalize certain things, good or bad. I mean, I think that some people might argue again, that this is kind of dystopian that like everybody's going to be walking around with AirPods in their ears. Is that what you're saying? And not necessarily, but I think that being more aware of the fact that these types of features even exist in uh, providing people with exposure to that, um, to me, I think there's just tremendous opportunity there when we're talking about combating the stigma around treating hearing loss. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, in, in the research, you know, we look specifically at some of the uh, strategies that the smoking cessation campaigns utilized. Uh, and I mentioned already some of them that were more innovative. Uh, you know, I just wanted to, to zero in on this idea of creating empowerment. So there's a smoking cessation campaign uh, called, called Every Try Counts. And uh, it acknowledges that, it, uh, that people often require multiple attempts to quit smoking. Um, and they had kind of three primary um, vehicles that they used in that campaign. Uh, one was to to provide people with factual information on uh, the impact of smoking. Um, the next one was to provide positive reinforcement. And then the third one was to create support programs. And even just, you know, by identifying, I think those three aspects of that campaign, we've now started to create a potential model for how hearing healthcare could emulate uh, this type of campaign to create empowerment. And I'll, uh, I'll sum up this research note by saying that one of the things that we looked at is particularly how could, you, how could a company create empowerment for people who are in the workforce? And our personal belief is that for adults, um, you know, up to say 75, the primary catalyst for getting treated for hearing loss is work. You know, our research shows that um, with people who face uh, poor performance reviews, missing critical information at work, or even potentially being fired, were finally motivated to get over the issue of stigma, which is very powerful and very real, and, uh, and seek hearing treatment. And, uh, you know, there's more people working in the older demographics than I think a lot of uh, folks initially realized. So a third of people aged 65 to 69 are in the workforce. They're not all working full time. Some of them are part time, but they are actively working. Uh, and for people aged 70 to 74, that number goes down to only a quarter. Still, a quarter of them are in the workforce. Now, those are pre pandemic numbers. We'll have to see how, once we get past the tumult of these last three years, those numbers settle in. But they'll probably be pretty similar, if not even higher, in terms of workforce participation. And so I think kind of uh, there's an opportunity for the hearing healthcare industry to combine some of these techniques from the smoking cessation campaigns and zero in on specific use cases like people um, needing to be able able to hear at work. 
Yeah, I love that whole theme of empowerment. And you're right, because, you know, that's how you can sort of normalize this. You know, we don't all have to be dependent upon something we can't control, like what's Apple going to advertise, um, something like that. But as even down to the employee or the employer level, I think these are the kinds of things that you can sort of see uh, some meaningful change. And this is where I would challenge the audiologist to really enter into the fold here, because again, as has been the theme on the podcast for a while now is like, you know, in this new age of online retailers, uh, big box retailers, um, new avenue avenues of access that people can pursue OTC self fit. How do you stand apart as a, how does the professional channel meaningfully stand apart? And I think that it's going to largely come down to recognizing that in the past, it used to just be that like here, the hearing aids, the end all be all, but we know that's not really the case. If you work in a call center, for example, um, and you have to process orders or something like that, that come through the phone, uh, is your phone set up in such a way where the, the, uh, audio through there is, is being configured to your hearing loss. That's a humongous opportunity is to understand what's the full, like what's your actual day-to-day look like and where are ways that we can optimize that throughout your day. That's so much more valuable than just come and see me and I'll get you, I'll fit you with like one singular device. I think it's understanding the individual and personalized needs on a patient by patient basis. That's value centered care is really what I'm getting at. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, it's interesting. I mentioned that before I started auditory insight, um, I had a 25 year career in telecom and also healthcare services. And the unifying thread across all of those was I was uh, launching new products, services, uh, channels, and then businesses, always creating new things. And, um, you know, I think part of, part of, part of what I learned during uh, those two plus decades of work was that segmentation is really important. And so we already have, you know, five global companies who are providing kind of a full suite of of hearing aids uh, for general purposes. And I do think that for new players into the industry, uh, zeroing in on specific applications or market segments is one way for them to make a dent uh, and in, you know, this challenge that we have of increasing adoption. Couldn't agree more. Um, Okay. So as we kind of come to the close here, I had one other note that I wanted to touch on with you. Um, We've kind of talked a lot about the uh, the less severe, um, you know, uh, cases of, of hearing loss and, and some of the ways that we can maybe address some of that. So I want to go to the opposite end of the spectrum and talk about the most severe cases of hearing loss and some of the ways that, um, you know, we can improve adoption on things like cochlear implants. So I know on your most recent note, Q1 of 2022, um, you talked a lot about cochlear implants and the adoption rates and some of the different um, ideas that you have in terms of how we can maybe uh, improve adoption in that arena? Sure. So I think, you know, the, the prevailing wisdom uh, in the industry for many people, not all, is that uh, the primary barriers to uh, more people getting cochlear implants, and that number, by the way, is about just a little bit over 5% of those who are indicated, uh, is to address structural factors. Uh, One example that's often given is that hearing aid audiologists uh, may not be always referring uh, their patients who are indicated for an 
cochlear implant for a, an evaluation, uh, either because they, they're just not aware of the benefits of cochlear implantation, or perhaps in some cases, they may not feel economically motivated to make that uh, referral. Uh, but there's some recent research that came out, and here I, I wanna um, give a, a shout out to uh, uh, Ebrahini-Madasa, I'm probably mispronouncing that, and I apologize, paper, but Dave, you can hopefully link to it. I'll link it, yep. Okay, great. And uh, this team analyzed uh, a number of contributing factors to what motivates and prevents people from getting a cochlear implant. And they discovered that really the patient was at the center of that journey. It's the patient who is primarily making this decision on whether to proceed or not to proceed. So with that insight, um, we stepped back and we said, okay, well, about 95% of them are not electing to proceed. And clearly some of that is because they don't understand the benefits, uh, but we, all, we wanted to know what else is on their mind. And as background to that question, we took a look at the outcomes for cochlear implantation. And what we discovered is that there's a wide range of uh, post-operative uh, speech perception scores. And um, I was delighted to co-author this paper with Dr. Erin Schaefer. She was actually one of the co-authors on this paper who produced these outcomes. Uh, and the median patient uh, goes from a pre-op speech recognition score of 15% to 56% post-op. Uh, but there's a tremendous amount of variability around those medians. Uh, the highest quartile of patients end up with speech recognition of 75% or greater. And that's a beautiful thing. Uh, for those people, uh, they're having a much more um, positive experience, probably both professionally as well as personally. Uh, but the, the lowest quartile is at 40% or below speech recognition. Uh, and that's really 40%, by the way, is the cutoff for Medicare to uh, to approve a, a CI in the first place. So we're seeing a lot of, of variation there and that created for us a hypothesis that perhaps this uncertainty around outcomes is a barrier. So the next thing we did was we looked at the literature on what patients express barriers are to cochlear implantation. Uh, and in fact, the number one express barrier in the study that we uh, we um, footnote and you know link to in our study, was that the, a cochlear implant quote would not improve my communication ability. So they're concerned that they'll go through the surgery and they won't end up with any better ability to communicate than what they had before. Um, and the before is not often, uh, it's not always a very good picture. It's typically cobbling together a solution of hearing aids, uh, captioning, sign language, lip reading, and what I call the W word, what? What was that that you just said? So, uh, you know, I, I empathize with what people are going through uh, because they're struggling to hear and yet they're not certain whether a cochlear implant will improve on their situation. Other express barriers were the risk of surgery, of course, and post-operative recovery. And that included how much time they might have to invest in um, uh, rehabilitation, which is understandable. 
but then the, the fourth and fifth barriers were, I'm concerned about losing music appreciation. And by the way, I think my hearing aids are just fine. So three of those five express barriers really are about hearing outcomes and the ability to communicate. Uh, so we hypothesize that some of this uncertainty about outcomes is driving some of these expressed patient barriers. And so there's a whole host of implications that, you know, we don't have time to get into now, but for uh, cochlear implant centers, for uh, cochlear implant manufacturers, and for companies who may be looking to come into this industry about how to address this. But clearly, uh, starting to develop data, perhaps utilizing big data uh, to analyze this is important to try to get a better handle on what people might expect based on their personal profile, including not only, you know, kind of more standard factors like their age, how long they've had a hearing loss, whether or not they've been wearing hearing aids, but some of the softer factors like how willing and able they are to participate in mapping sessions and, and rehab. Yeah. I feel like this whole thing, there is, like you said, there's so much to unpack. Um, and, yeah. and we'll table this for, for part two down the line, along with okay. some of the other research notes that you've had, but I wanted to just draw attention to that as just another example of the depth and breadth of the types of things that you're covering, because, um, just a, wanted to plug auditory insight, just broadly speaking as being a really awesome, well thought out, um, you know, market development kind of uh, forum for this kind of research. And, um, you know, I know we, we spent a lot of time on the lower end of the market, like I said, or the lower cases of severity. Um, but I wanted to just give you an opportunity to kind of speak to some of the work that you did there, because I did, and there were a lot of takeaways of that I had personally with this. So, um, you know, I know that you had mentioned in there that, you know, a lot of this is like having the, uh, you know, direct, relationship with somebody that has had a CI and how important that is in terms of getting people to um, be willing to quote unquote, take the plunge. So just so much there, um, so much to unpack. And I just thought that, you know, this whole conversation for me has been really awesome because, you know, I've felt like I've been kind of reading and writing and podcasting about a lot of this stuff. And to talk to somebody that's really done the work of the, you know, the really deep research that you have on this, um, and, and, and have a conversation about these topics. Um, it's, you know, who knows how this will all pan out. Um, I have my own personal inclinations of, of some of the ways that I can see this all transpiring. And I know others have totally different ideas. Um, but I think like, what's really important is that, these discussions and all of these different thoughts and perspectives are part of the discussion. And, and we can all sort of come to, you know, an idea of how we can try to make change in a positive way together. Um, you know, in the, here we are like heading into the OTC era. And I just think that there's, there's a lot of things I think to be pretty excited about of what's to come. And for someone like you, who is a, you know, a longtime hearing aid user, and, and this is a really personal um, issue that's near and dear to your heart. I just can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing your perspective and, and some of the key takeaways of the types of notes that you write. 
Thank you so much, Dane. I really enjoyed this. And uh, it's just a pleasure to be able to share what we're working on and our perspectives. I know you have many listeners out there. So uh, I hope this is the first of, of many podcasts that we'll do together. Absolutely. So for the listeners who can uh, who want to follow up with you, where's the best place to reach you? Sure. So, uh, you know, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm quite active on LinkedIn. People are uh, should feel free to message me on LinkedIn or uh, send me a connection um, invite and then message me. Be happy to hear from them. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Nancy. Thanks for everybody who tuned in here to the end. And we will chat with you next time. Cheers. Mm-hmm.